0: You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at crossvillerevolution.com. Well, we're in the eighth week of our series through the book of James. If you're new to Rev Church, what we like to do about 90% of the time is preach verse by verse through entire books of the Bible because it allows us to get the context. Uh, And we would encourage you, that's how you should study the Bible as well, is look at the context fully of passages of Scripture and verses of Scripture. Today we're going to be in James chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. And if I was going to give personally a name to this sermon, uh, I would name this sermon something that Big John McCarthy, who was the original UFC referee, would say every time uh, before two MMA fighters, cage fighters would fight, he'd look at one and say, you ready? He'd look at the other and say, you ready? And then he would say, let's get it on. Anybody ever heard that before? No? If you haven't heard that, then maybe you'll recognize what Michael Buffer used to do before major boxing bouts when he would say, let's get ready to rumble. That's the name of the sermon today. Because today, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, it talks about something very specific, and that is fighting with other Christians, fights that happen within the church. We're going to get all up in your business this weekend, okay, y'all? Look at your neighbor and say, all up in your business, you know what I mean? And this is going to be, as I say all the time, you know, the book of James is like this. This is easy preaching, but hard living. It starts out in James chapter 4. We're going to read the first three verses and we'll go along, break it up in about three different ways. But James starts out with a question again. Several weeks in a row, we've seen James start these passages uh, with a question. And the question is this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come... From your desires that battle within you. You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James in this passage is going to talk about three different battles that take place. And the first one that he talks about is the battle among us. What did he say with the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And what James is pointing out is we've got a opportunity to either and a choice to make about whether or not we are going to put up a fight or we're going to put on faith as he goes through this passage. What causes fights among you? The battle among us. How many of y'all know that people, whether they're Christian or not, tend to get into arguments and conflicts and fight. Amen, y'all? It doesn't matter if it's about business. It doesn't matter if it's about politics. It doesn't matter if it's about religion. It doesn't matter if it's about education. Married couples in here, I mean, y'all know you've had some fellowship that the neighbors could hear at some point. Amen, y'all? I've told you all this before on our wedding day, somebody gave us this advice. Don't ever go to bed angry at each other. Make sure you work it out before you go to bed. Well, after about two weeks of no sleep, we figured that was bad advice. You know what I mean? We got to get some sleep. Because we have conflict. There's a battle that takes place among us and sports people fight. And believe it or not, I know we kind of look at the church through rose-colored glasses sometimes, and they shouldn't act like that, and that's not a very Christian thing to do, but Christians fight, and even churches corporately fight too. Clearly, James is speaking to Christians because he wrote this letter to a church, and he says, among you, and there's a couple other places where I'll point this out, When he says fights and quarrels, he uses two different words. The first in the Greek is polemos, which references fights or warfare, and that's on the corporate side, this idea that groups of Christians can fight. In the church, corporately, we can have fights. But the second word is mache, which refers to skirmishes and individual attacks. So it's also speaking to the fact that two Christians can get into a fight one-on-one together. I heard about a pastor that was pastoring a very difficult church uh, and he had about had enough. And in particular, this pastor was really having a difference of vision and a difference of opinion with the worship pastor. The worship pastor had been there for a long time. The pastor came in and was trying to, you know, bring the church back to life and change a few things up. And they were just not on the same page. Well, one week, the pastor uh, preached a sermon on commitment. And the worship pastor at the altar call sang the hymn, I Shall Not Be Moved. The next week, the pastor preached a sermon on giving and tithing. The worship pastor at the altar call decided to sing the hymn, Jesus Paid It All. The next week, the pastor preached a sermon on gossip and said, don't be gossiping. Well, the worship pastor decided to sing the hymn, I Love to Tell the Story. Well, the pastor had had enough, and so he gets up the next week, and he asks for prayers from the congregation. He's straight up with him. He says, I'm thinking about leaving. I'm really having a hard time. I need you to pray for me about whether or not I should resign or not. Well, at the altar call that week, the worship pastor played the hymn, Oh, why not tonight? The next week, the pastor gets up, and he tells the church, I'm resigning, and I need you all to know that Jesus is the one who brought me here. And Jesus is the one who's taking me away from this church. And the worship pastor at the altar call decided to play the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Y'all know what I mean? Well, that's funny. But if you've been in church more than five minutes, especially if you've been involved in churches behind the scenes, that's not too far off. We could see something like this literally taking place in some case. Because Christians aren't perfect, and Christians fight, and they quarrel. I read a few years ago a list to you from Thomas Thomas Rayner, who was the president of Lifeway. He'd he'd uh, done consultation with hundreds of churches, and he made a list of the funniest things that caused churches to split. If I could remind you of a few of those things. One church got in a fight over whether or not they should build a playground or a cemetery. Which one's going to lead them to grow? Let's get a playground for the kids or let's, let's bury everybody. I'm dying to know the resolution to that one, aren't y'all? One church had a fight over coffee. No joke. They changed the coffee one week from Folgers to Starbucks and a whole bunch of people got mad and left the church. They went and started a church called the Right Blend Fellowship, you know? One church had a 6-hour business meeting on the subject of whether or not people should be allowed to bring deviled eggs to the potluck. And somebody suggested as long as somebody brings angel food cake and balances it out, right? One church, I don't know, this is this was the best one that I read, literally split because they had a fight over whether they should have gluten-free communion bread. One side told the other side, don't you know gluttony is a sin? I'm sorry, y'all. Are y'all awake? Everybody good? Say amen. Okay, we'll get you there. Don't worry. There's a battle among us, and we fight over important things and not so important things. And the Bible teaches that conflict is not necessarily bad. It's how we go about it that can be so destructive. So there's a battle among us, but James points out what causes the battle among us. And simply put, it's the battle within us that causes it, the battle within us. He says you have desires that battle within you. Notice, James says when you fight and you argue and you have anger towards each other and bitterness towards each other and you gossip and you do all these destructive things, it's not Satan's fault, it's among you. It's the desires that are, that, are, that are inside of you, that are battling within you. It's not some heretic or false teacher's fault. No, we are the ones to blame, James says. See, we want to blame everybody else for all the quarrels and fights we get into in our life, but, but that's false. The issue, James says, is not everybody else. It is us. The problem is not out there. It's in here it's within us. All through the book of James, we see this idea of struggling with the flesh and the things inside of us. If you remember back in chapter one, we found that the source of temptation was what? Our own lusts and desires. The exact same word that's used for desires here. Last week, when we were talking about earthly wisdom, we talked about The things that cause disorder and wickedness, that earthly wisdom, comes from jealousy and selfish ambition. It comes from within us, inside of us. He uses the word desires here. It could be translated enjoyments. And defined what this means is the desire to be successful or the desire to use your gifts and talents. James is saying, when something gets in the way of what we want, our tendency is to fight until we get our way, even in the church and even among Christians. He tells us, and he uses strong language, he says, these desires cause us to kill. And he might mean literally kill someone. We've seen that happen in circumstances before in churches, but probably more appropriately, he's reminding us of what James's older brother told us. And that's the fact that in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, you don't have to literally murder someone in order to commit murder inside your heart. You just have to have unresolved anger toward a brother or sister and you're guilty of murder. Desires cause us to fight. He uses the word covet. So covetness, wanting what someone else has. How this plays out in the church is it sounds like this. If you've ever been in the behind the scenes of a church, you've heard this stuff before. You know, I want, I want. That's usually the way the phrase starts. Like you can tell that there's a quarrel or a fight coming is because someone says, I want. That's the desire speaking. I want to lead worship. I want to preach. I want to be a leader. I want to lead a group. I want to lead the solo, not sing backup or harmony on this. Y'all know what I'm saying? I I want to use my gifts. I want to be an elder. I want to be on staff. I want my seat in the sanctuary are you sitting in it. I want my Folgers coffee, not Starbucks coffee. I don't want to submit to the church. I don't want to do something like go through the training in order to be a small group leader because I've been a leader at several churches and I know my stuff better than anybody and I'm not going to do that. I am I don't want to follow the systems of the church. church. I want and I don't want shows what's in the heart. Shows the desires that you're struggling with. Because when we don't get what we want and someone else does, typically our default is to get mad. It's to gossip. It's to get upset and cause all kinds of chaos. James tells us the reason we have these desires inside of us. He tells us, hey, there's going to be fights among you. and Those fights come from the desires within you. Don't be blaming anybody else. But then he says, here's the reason you have those desires and cause fights. It's from prayerlessness. It's from not having a strong prayer life. Prayerlessness causes these desires. One commentator said this, Prayerlessness is a sign that you're trying to run things in your own strength, for your own sake, and under your own authority. See, a lack of prayer comes from a sense of independence from God. And here's the important concept. Instead of praying about our desires, what we do when we don't pray is we seek to indulge them at all costs. It never blows my mind how I want to do something and maybe you can relate with this. And I I put the cart before the horse, so to speak, in that I just I just do it. I just do it. And if somebody calls me out and says, have you prayed about doing this? A lot of times my answer is no. Somebody comes to me and says, I think I'll, I want to do this, Pastor Josh. And I'll say to him, have you prayed about this? No. It's just something that I wanted to do. And what happens when you don't pray is... Even not even necessarily evil things, good things can become bad things because it's what you want and not necessarily what God wants. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. And so prayerlessness, the purpose of prayer is not to try to get God to do what we want, is what James is saying. The purpose of prayer is it's where we align ourselves with God's priorities. It reminds us of what God wants. We don't remind God of what we want when we pray. We've already established that God gives good gifts to his children. And when you don't pray, it is you that is deciding what's good. And you seek to get it through your own effort. The idea is this. Prosperity preachers would tell you something like this. They would paint this picture. God is the piñata. Jesus is the stick. Pray to Jesus and you'll hit the piñata and you'll get all the candy and all the sweets you want. Because after all, we can pull that verse out of context that says God will always give you the desires of your heart. You need to go read 1 John because it clarifies that and talks about according to God's will. As long as you're praying according to God's will... Then God will give you the desires of your heart. This is why prayer is to get us on the same page as God, not to get God on the same page as us. But Jesus is not the stick, God is not the pinata. You don't just ask and get whatever you want. Think about this Jesus never taught his disciples how to preach. You can't find one place in the Gospels where Jesus sat down with the disciples and said, Okay, boys. I'm gonna show y'all how to put an effective sermon together that engages with the audience where you'll preach really, really good. You won't find one place in the gospels where Jesus teaches people how to sing solos. He's not like, all right, we're getting ready to feed these 5,000 people, bread and everything. We need to get a band together. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but he's not like, let me get this band together, show them how to sing, show them how to do worship or something like that. He never does that. Jesus doesn't teach his disciples how to raise money. Jesus doesn't teach his disciples how to build buildings. He doesn't teach them how to form denominations. He doesn't teach them how to get really smart and get degrees. Jesus taught them how to pray. He sits down as an intentional about saying, this is how you should pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. I heard about a guy who was trying to lose weight and he was on a diet. And uh, his friend noticed that he kept bringing donuts to work every single day. So he asked him, he said, man, why are you bringing donuts to work every single day if you're trying to lose weight and you're dieting? He told his friend, well, I came around the corner where the donut shop was. I told God if he wanted me to buy some donuts to have a parking spot in the front. On the eighth time around, there was a parking spot there, and I pulled in. I felt like the Lord was telling me to get donuts. Isn't that a picture of a lot of our prayer lives? I desire this. God, will you make it happen? Eight times around, nope, 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 nope. On the eighth time, we find like a, a motorcycle parking spot. And we shove our suburban in it, don't we? I'm going to make this fit because this is what I want. And boy, God must be leading me. There's a bike rack. You know what I mean? Like, let's put our car in there. Nope. it's not what prayer is for. Sam Albrey said this in his commentary about these verses. If you don't see many answers to your prayers, maybe the problem is your prayers. Are you really praying for God's will? If you ever say, I've prayed and I've prayed, but God still hasn't given me, and here's that phrase again, what I want. What I want. This passage says you got the wrong motives. He's not a genie in a bottle that's granting your wishes. We want his will to be done. One theologian said, nothing lies outside the reach of prayer, except that which lies outside the will of God. Nothing lies outside the reach of prayer, except that which lies outside the will of God. See what we learn is the default setting for every single one of us is to have ourselves at the center of everything we want and everything we desire. But what we're getting ready to see in the next verses is why this is a major mistake, because yes, there's a battle among us where we fight. Everybody knows that's true. The reason for that battle is the battle within us. But the third battle James talks about is the most dangerous one. Look what he says in verse four. Y'all still with me? Say, I am. He says this, you adulterous people, strong language. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. The third battle is the most dangerous, and that is the battle above us our selfish desires lead us to conflict with other people, but in a more serious tone, James points out, it also leads us to conflict with God himself, to a battle with God himself. He uses the phrase, you adulterous people, to put it in our vernacular today, It's very offensive language, and I'll just use kind of a middle-of-the-way language to offend us. He's looking at these people saying, y'all are a bunch of hoes. Look at your neighbor. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Top it online, all caps. I'm just kidding. (laughs) You adulterous people, in other words, you're cheating on God. All of your attention, all of your affection, all of your allegiance is not towards God. It's not towards His church, but it's toward your selfish desires and it's toward the world. Make no mistake, God only calls people adulterers if they are supposed to be faithful to Him. So once again, let me point out, He's not talking to lost sinners here. He's speaking to people that have been bought by the blood of Jesus He's talking to the saved person who hooks back up with the systems of the world and how they become an enemy of God when they do that. See, it's not friendship with people in the world that's the problem, as some people would point out in this verse. You can't be friends with anybody, and you can't go see R-rated movies, and you can't do that and this and this. That's not what this is talking about. It's friendship with the values of the world. The book of James, I point this out all the time, and this is why we go verse by verse through passages of Scripture. It was one continuous letter. It was never meant to be broken up in passages like we do. It's not bad that we do that as long as we get the context of it. We do that for time's sake on the weekends because I couldn't preach through the entire book of James in one Sunday. It would take like 30 hours or something like that. But if you remember last week, what precedes this is James talking about earthly demonic wisdom versus God's wisdom. And we talked about last week, when we talked about earthly demonic wisdom, what we talked about was an earthly worldview of things. Coming in contact with the world's system and adopting those in our lives and the way we view the world. One commentator says this, when you climb back into bed with the world, God is like a husband who finds his wife back in bed with the person she used to date before he came into her life and rescued her from an abusive, awful relationship, and he is angry. James uses strong language. I told y'all, easy preaching, hard living here. He says, if you're going to be a friend of the world, you're going to be an enemy of God. You can't do both. The idea is if you ride the fence when you put your trust in Jesus and you got one foot in the world and one foot in this Christianity thing, you're going to get bit on both legs. Over and over, and again in this passage, in the next few verses we're going to read, we see the book of James talk about a double-minded person. This is exactly what it's speaking to. You've got a choice. Friendship with the world or friendship with God. Summer's coming up. And uh, I don't want to buy new swimming trunks. So that means I've got to lose about 10 or 15 pounds to fit into the swimming trunks I wore last year. Anybody ever been there? Don't secretly judge me, okay, y'all? But I've had this realization that if I'm going to lose weight, I've got to divorce myself from something that's going to cause me to stumble. And that thing can be summed up in two words, pop tarts. They're so good. They're so good. When I was a kid, there was like two flavors of Pop-Tarts, strawberry and cherry. Now they got like every flavor you can imagine. Not only is there chocolate, but there's, there's like Eggo waffle Pop-Tarts and uh, sugar cookie Pop-Tarts. I mean, it's ridiculous, y'all. And I love me some Pop-Tarts. I try to justify why it's okay to eat Pop-Tarts it's a good post-workout meal. Gets carbs, gets my glycogen. No, it doesn't. All Pop-Tarts do is make me fat. You know what I mean? And it's sending me to an early grave with diabetes. Y'all know what I'm saying? So in order for me to lose weight and get healthy, I have to completely divorce myself of Pop-Tarts. Y'all, Y'all think I'm kidding. I can't even go down the aisle because I'll start checking out the new flavors that they have and be like, man, I want to try that one. See if it's any good. I'll just take a bite and I end up eating the whole box. Y'all know what I mean? This is what James is saying. You got to completely when you get in this thing of following Jesus, there's no one foot in, one foot out. You completely divorce yourself of the world or you're never going to get healthy ever. It's it's all in. It's we offer our bodies as Romans 12 says as a living sacrifice acceptable to him. Chuck Swindoll says, God's jealousy for his people's faithfulness is like a husband's longing for his wife's fidelity. That's what this passage is saying. He's jealous for you. You can't have friendship with the world. What this leads us to is it leads us to a place where we have to ask some questions like James does so good at asking these questions. You have to ask yourself, are you chasing the things that are important to the world or are you really desiring the things of God? That's what you need to wrestle with today and the rest of this week. God, show me, am I really all, like all out, not that you're going to be perfect, but I'm sold out to you. I'm really trying to desire the things that you want. I'm doing my best to follow you or am I really secretly like trying to gain the whole world? You got to answer that this week. And I would take that a step further, and I would encourage you to go find somebody that you trust, that you know loves Jesus and loves you, and you need to ask them their objective opinion. Hey, do you see in me that I'm trying to to adopt the world's ways? I'm friends with the world, but I'm not really pursuing the things of God. And then hope that they tell you the truth, and you can change your your life based off that. The good thing is, as we continue in verse 7 to verse 10, if you answer that question that you're an enemy of God because you're pursuing the things of the world, here comes the remedy. James doesn't just diagnose the problem that we all struggle with, maybe for one decision or for a season, or or maybe you've always struggled with it since you've known Christ. He gives us the prescription to fix it in our lives, and that's a good good thing. Listen to verse 7. Y'all still with me? Say, I am. He says, submit yourselves. Man, we hate that word, don't we? How many times have we read submit during the book of James? Everybody say submit, one, two, three. That's good. Y'all know I was gonna make you redo it if you didn't say it loud, right? So submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. What a beautiful verse. Have y'all heard that before? Come near to God and he will come near to you. Isn't it good to know the context that this verse was written in? We're going to talk about it. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Here's the combat plan to win these battles. He points them out to us. Number one, he says, Submit yourselves to God. This is a command. In other words, don't fight God, don't fight his word, don't resist and push God away. Instead, surrender, resign your rights, relinquish yourself to him. I would say quite literally, if this passage is speaking to you, you have to get to a place where you say, Lord, I give up. I'm broken. I cannot do things my way anymore. That happens to even Christians, you know that, right? Remember, written to Christians. You've been trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do things in your own power, make things happen the way you want them to happen, and you keep finding there's a dead end at every one of them. You need to get to a place where you submit to him. I give up. Stop stonewalling God, in other words, and start submitting to him. He says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I've always heard that verse, rebuke the devil, and he will flee from you. Anybody ever misquoted that verse to you? No, it's Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The idea is this. Satan loves when we pursue our own desires. You know why? Because it makes his work really easy. In fact, there's, there's a good argument to be made that if you're in the, one of the most comfortable places you've ever been in your life pursuing your own desires... Satan's never going to attack you, because why would he? They're messing this up on their own. That church is over there fighting among themselves, pursuing their own desires. Let's not waste the manpower in trying to make it worse. They've done a pretty good job by themselves. Don't mess with Josh. He's making his own choices. He's not asking God. He's never praying. Just leave him alone. Let him ruin his own life. See, when, when we do that, when we, we have this proud pursuit of our own wills, it looks a lot like Satan's rebellion and downfall, doesn't it? That's the idea. Resist the devil and he will flee. Come near to God and he will come near to you. In other words, don't clench your fist and turn your back on God. Turn your face toward him with open hands to receive whatever he has for you. Does anybody know the story of Hosea in the Old Testament? Anybody know the story of Hosea in the Old Testament? Raise your hand if you do. Raise your hand if you do. Okay, like three people. Okay, okay. This is all new people that brand new saved in here, right? The story of Hosea, you can't help but think of it when you read this passage, when it talks about adultery and all this stuff. Because what happens? Gomer, his wife, runs away, cheats on him over and over and over. And it's a picture of Christ. It was a literal story, but it's a picture of Christ. Every single time his wife cheated on him, what did he do? He went back to her. He paid more of a price to get her out of the prostitution she was in. That's the idea here. Come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Some of y'all in here, you've committed multiple acts of adultery on God, and you can't believe it. Some of y'all in here, You're kicking the whole tires of this Christianity thing. Trying to figure out if this is real or not. A crowd this size, there's people in here, most definitely, that have thought to themselves, I've done so much wrong against God. All the times I've committed adultery against Him or or been married to the world, how in the world could God ever accept me? How could God bring me back in? How could Jesus save me? What this verse means is, listen, there's a bridge to God, and his name is Jesus Christ. And if I could give you a word picture with this, what this means is, you don't have to trudge through all the stuff you've ever done, all the mistakes you've ever made, all the adultery you've ever committed. You can turn around right where you are, And there is an escalator or an elevator or a bridge straight to God and His name is Jesus Christ. Come near to God and He will absolutely come near to you. He says, how do you do that? Well, He gives us some weird language, but listen, this is how you do that. How do you come near to God? Number one, you wash your hands. That means you stop doing evil. Secondly, You purify your hearts. That means you stop thinking evil. Thirdly, you grieve, mourn, and wail. What that means is you feel conviction and remorse for your sin. See, the prayer in here this weekend, listen to me when I say this, because so many people fall into this trap. The prayer in here this weekend is for the person that says they're a Christian, but they never feel remorse. They never feel conviction for their sin. The prayer this weekend is for the people that Romans chapter 1 says, you get to a place where you're so immersed yourself in a lifestyle of sin that God gives you over to a debased mind because you're uh, worshiping creation rather than the creator. And you have sex with your boyfriend, but you never feel bad about it. Never repent. You lie all the time, but you never have remorse, never any conviction for it. You cheat all the time, but you never feel bad about it. The prayer for you this weekend is God breaks you radically. And you feel this, I don't know how to put it, other than this this shame for being friends with the world and essentially being an enemy of God in the midst of being friends with the world. And you feel conviction and remorse. And it leads you to repentance and asking for forgiveness. Does this make sense to everybody? Say amen. Easy preaching, hard living. He says, grieve and mourn. And then he says, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. What does that mean? Does that mean you're not a real Christian unless you're like upset all the time and sad all the time? No. He's being very specific. What James is saying here is you need to take your sin seriously. In other words, don't make a joke of your sin. Don't laugh off the wicked things that you're involved in. In other words, what we're talking about here today is very serious. It's not funny. If you're going to be friends with the world, it means you are an enemy of God. God opposes the proud. By the way, you'll find that exact phrasing, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble three different times, Old Testament and New, all throughout Scripture. When God says something once, does he mean it, y'all? Everybody say amen. God says something twice, does he mean it? If God says something three times, it might be a good idea to get it tattooed on your arm if you're thinking about a tattoo. Y'all know what I'm saying? That'd be a good one. That'd be a good one. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. I'll close with this. I remember when I was little, driving all around Knoxville, when I was probably four four, five, six, seven years old, sitting on my dad's lap. Can anybody relate to me? You remember back when you were small, back in the day, when nobody cared about if you wore seatbelts? And, like, car safety was, like, no big deal. I can remember when I was little at some point, you know, in the back seat, they've got the window, and there's a shelf behind the back seat. I can remember on trips going to sleep up there when I was a kid. My parents being like, just get up there and lay down. Yeah, you'll be fine. If we hit the brakes hard, you go flying off into the front seats and hit them in the back. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Say amen. Back then we were tough. Now they're a bunch of sissies. I got to have seatbelts, save lives. What in the world? You know what I mean? I'm just kidding. Seatbelts are good, okay, y'all? But I can remember when I was a kid, and you didn't get in trouble for that stuff, sitting on my dad's lap and driving all over Knoxville. And I got to thinking about that this week, about how my dad, would give me the wheel and let me drive. But guess what? His feet were the ones that were always ready to hit the brake, ready to hit the gas and speed up and slow down. His hands were right there to take the wheel if at any time I did something wrong. This is the picture that James gives us here. Far too many Christians have bought into the slogan, and there's a bumper sticker that says this, and it's heretical. Jesus is my co-pilot. Jesus ain't your co pilot. If you really, really know Christ, you're sitting on his lap. And ultimately, he's the one that's in control. Think about that as far as humbling yourself. Most of the people in here are adults. When you're five or six years old and you sit on your dad's lap and do that, it's fun. But right now, how awkward would it be? Like, think of the guy who plays Jesus in The Chosen. You're sitting on his lap, and he's guiding you as far as you drive. You're an adult. How how humiliating would that be? I don't know about y'all, but when I drive, I get mad at my wife when she tells me a car's about to hit me or something. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, woman, I know what I'm doing. You know, I'll just let you drive. I'm never driving again. You know what I mean? That pride wells up in me. So how much would you have to humble yourself to sit on his lap and listen to him say, no, 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 you don't put your foot on the brake. I'll I'll keep my foot on there. I'll be the one that decides how fast we go. Here, you can have the steering wheel. My hands are right there, ready to grab it. Just in case you do something crazy, you get a little too bought into your own desires and what you want to do. That's the picture that James gives us. He's in control ultimately. We want your will to be done. And as a result, we avoid these foolish arguments and ridiculous fights. Amen, Rev. Church. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today. I just pray for our church. Man, what a great passage for us. when We're in the midst of a season of major changes, uh, getting ready to move to a movie theater and a facility that you have given us. Lord, I just pray that the blessing doesn't become bigger than the blesser. And God, uh, uh, we would remember what the main thing is. That God, when when we start to have those desires well up in us, that we want this and we need to do this, that we remember first we need to pray and ask you, according to your will, what is it we're supposed to do? And that God, we would love each other the way we're supposed to. I pray for the people under the sound of my voice that are under major conviction From today's message. They know. They know. They know it is not the devil telling them that they are struggling with the world. And they're committing adultery on God. Satan would never say that to them. They know the Holy Spirit is whispering in their ear. You got to divorce this thing or these things in your life. That are causing you to be an enemy of God. I pray for repentance, God. And I pray for a turning back to you and a freshness, a rebirth, if you will. They were already born again when they got saved, but but a rebirth, if you will, a fresh start for them, if you will, so that you can lead and guide them and keep them from steering off the road and flipping their car over a thousand times. We love you. You are awesome and you are mighty. In Jesus' name. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.